I'm Stephen Canals, the co-creator of Pose, and you're listening to Truth Be Told. I once had a friend who was a true soul sister. I mean, we were ride or die for each other. We made each other laugh. We cried on each other's shoulders. We just got each other. And I knew we'd be friends forever. Until we weren't. 20 years later, I still think about her. What I did wrong in our friendship and what I've done differently since then to make certain I never experience that kind of heartbreak again. I'm Tanya Mosley, and on this episode of Truth Be Told, the importance of friendship and how to make and keep friends as a full-grown adult. Dear Truth Be Told. Dear Truth Be Told. told. Dear Truth Be Told. I really need your help. I need your help. I need your help. We're all adults now, and one thing that's true, the older you get, the harder it is to maintain and make friends. So instead of one dilemma this week, we're taking on several of your questions about friendships. And two wise ones, Amina Tussauds and Ann Friedman, the co-hosts of the Call Your Girlfriend podcast. And they're also the co-authors of a new book, Big Friendship, How We Stay Close. Welcome to Truth Be Told, ladies. Hi, Hi Tanya. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Um, first of all, congratulations on your new book. Uh, thank you. Thank you. How did it come about to write a book? I think that we saw a gap in the literature that exists about um, really staying in a long-term friendship, not just through things that are joyful and exciting and life-giving, but also things that are really challenging. And, you know, just from our own experience and our own friendship, that was something that we have at various points really wanted to read. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. Am I missing anything else about our origin story there? No, I think um, that is it. What we were really looking for is a joint telling of one friendship and also find some common vocabulary and the, the words best friend and BFF and bestie are all great, but there is something just about them that is so reductive to the the really <laughs> enriching experience that two adults can yeah. have in friendship. And so mm-hmm. we were really trying to um, to capture what that relationship is like between the two of us because we understand that it is true for so many other people as well. Mm. At the beginning of your new book, Big Friendship, there's a definition of the term. Can one of you read that? Do you have the book in front of you? Oh, my God. I so do, actually. Prepared. You have it? Yes. Oh, I do. Big friendship is a bond of great strength, force, and significance that transcends life phases, geography, and emotional shifts. It is large in dimension, affecting most aspects of each person's life. It is full of meaning and resonance. A big friendship is reciprocal, with both parties feeling worthy of each other and willing to give of themselves in generous ways. A big friendship is active, hearty, and almost always a big friendship is mature. Its advanced age commands respect and predicts its ability to last far into the future. Mm. Did you guys sit down together to write this one? Because I, I am really struck by a big friendship is active. And I mean, that's so true. That line is rooted in some research that we cite in the book. Um, there are a handful of people studying adult friendships 
And uh, one of them, this guy named William K. Rollins, puts friendship into multiple categories, active, passive, and commemorative. Uh, The active ones are like fully happening right now. You know, you are in communication with each other regularly. You, you know, maybe don't know about the last 24 hours, but you are up to date on the struggles and joys of that person's life. Mm. Passive friendships are ones where you still feel a great fondness and maybe a good bond, but you aren't really keeping up. And Mm -hmm. commemorative are friendships that you've both moved on from and you don't expect to ever come back to. Mm. And we really make that distinction of, you know, a big friendship is one that you are both continuing to invest in in real time. Because I think that there is this idea for a lot of folks that, you know, once someone is kind of an old friend, you can just assume that they will still be there. Like whenever you're through whatever... And those are really more in that passive category than active. Mm -hmm. And the research also says that you might be wrong. They might not be there when you come back to them. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love that distinction. And I love those categories. I wonder if there's a category somewhere in the middle between um, passive and commemorative. Because I I do think there's something that happens oftentimes with adult relationships. See, you know, I'm treating you all like therapists now. I'm like, before we're done with this... (laughs) We're going to talk about the complexities of my friendships. But I want to ask you, you two, I really think it's fascinating how you all met. Can you tell our audience how your friendship got started um, and what drew you all to each other? There are always like two answers to how do you meet someone. The very superficial story is that Anne and I met at a Gossip Girl viewing party in 2009. This is the era where, yes, you still had to have cable to watch TV because appointment (laughs) television was a thing. Our mutual friend, Dio, was already a more established friend to Anne. And someone that the first time I met her was like, you have to meet my friend, Anne. And so, you know, there was a lot of intention behind that, and she brought us together. The truth, though, is that Anne and I also lived... Um, you know, about a 15-minute walk from each other. We shared a humongous group of friends together. So even if Dio had not been the one to bring us together, whatever the activities of um, idle 20-year-olds <laughs> are that bring people together <laughs> would have brought us together. And so we talk a lot in our book about the way that you talk about how you meet someone really being a barometer for even how you feel about that other person. Yeah, and also the underlying feeling of really wanting to get to know someone better and having them in your life, you know, that's something that does not belong exclusively to romantic relationships, you know, like that butterflies in the stomach. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to have Mm -hmm. met this person and I just want to know everything about her. Like that feeling is still palpable to me when I picture what it was like to meet each other. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) It it reminds me of my favorite one of my favorite sappy movies, Beaches. Of oh, course. Oh my god, yeah. Beaches. Canon. <laughs> Beaches is definitely in the friendship canon for sure. <laughs> it is, yeah. Um, you two developed Shine Theory, which I subscribe to, by the way. Can you all tell everyone what that is? Shine Theory is the operating principle in, you know, our relationship. It comes from Years and years ago, telling each other, I don't shine if you don't shine, um, which is just a way of reassuring each other that we are in it together. 
it was just really um, looking at each other and saying like, okay, we don't really have mentors. We don't know what we're doing at work, but we are invested in each other's successes. And we mm. are invested in seeing each other through, you know, like our ambition and the career goals that we have. And and it's something that was a shorthand in, in our friendship, but that we have found that it's true for so many other people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, let's get to some questions uh, from our audience. And our first one comes from someone in San Francisco. Dear Truth Be Told, my name is Jaina from California, and I've been listening to a lot of advice podcasts. Savage Love, Were You Raised by Wolves, Ask a Manager, RIP. They offer varying advice about how and when to poke your nose in someone else's business. But if we know our girlfriend like the back of our hand and feel like she's making a really bad decision, like sticking with a partner that should be dumped or overly self-medicating, etc., when is it appropriate to intervene? And how do we do it so that it's understood that it comes out of our love and concern? That's really a good one. I mean, we go through lots of phases with our friends and we see lots of things with our friends, especially if we're super close with them, like you all are. I mean, not to. Um, I recognize the contours of that question so much. And, you know, some of that stuff are things that, like, I have struggled in my own relationships. To this listener, I would say the first thing is to take a deep breath and ask yourself why it is important to say the thing that you want to say. You know, Mm. are you saying it because you're annoyed by it or are you saying it because it actually is having um, repercussions for your friend or it is also having um, repercussions in your friendship where it is stretching you emotionally to be friends with someone who is making a kind of decision for themselves. And Mm -hmm. I have found for myself that sometimes the answer really is, oh, I'm just judgmental, you know? And I was like, Mm. if that is the case, (laughs) if I'm being judgmental, then, um, you know, it's a different approach than, oh, actually, I am worried for my friend and I think that she might not be happy or um, she might not be safe or Mm -hmm. she needs someone to listen to her. I also think that finding a way into the conversation that does not center yourself, you know, and say, Oh, what like, do you mean by that? So yeah. instead of saying, um, hey, your partner sucks and <laughs> I don't think you're happy with them, I think I would say, hey, tell me about your relationship. Are you happy? Mm-hmm. You know, and letting them express for themselves and letting them open up to you about what is really happening here. Because I think that, you know, that tension between, you are really concerned for a friend, but also you are not communicating with them well enough that they understand that it's coming from a place of concern and they feel judged is something that we all have to struggle with. And I also think that if the end goal is I want to stay friends with this person and I care about them, you also do have to understand that um, one conversation is not the thing that is going to make someone change their behavior. What you actually want Mm -hmm. to communicate to your friend is, I'm here for you no matter what. But I do think Mm -hmm. that if you are generous with people and you are honest about your motivations, you can generally expect for your friend to open up that way reciprocally to you. Oh, so good. Let's take our next question. It's from Todd in San Jose. Dear Truth Be Told, is it okay to drop someone that you've been close with your whole life, but whose life path is so different now that they're not the same person you remember? 
Oh, and this is one that I think a lot of people have dealt with in some way or form, whether it's growing away from a friend or really seeing that you've grown into two different people. What's your advice? Uh, Yeah, I think, you know, in those categories of friendship we were talking about, this is how a lot of people end up with those commemorative friendships, right? Mm. That really served them for a period of time, but that they have let go of. Todd says, you know, this person is really different than when we first became friends. But different can mean I'm feeling really challenged to stay close to this person, but I still laugh at all their jokes. Or it could mean, wow, we really have no point of connection anymore, you know? And I think sometimes there is a reason why it's hard to evaluate a relationship with, like, a lot of historical weight, because that does count for something, you know? Like, being known for a long period of time is a special and valuable thing that is just, you can't snap your fingers and get that in a new friendship or a new relationship. But I would say that, um, you know, thinking a lot about what the weight of that history means in real time, you know, like, has there been a time when the fact that you share memories or this person has a knowledge of you has really felt good? Or is that sort of not really a factor and all that's happening is you're not really drawing a lot from the friendship? Um, Yeah. You know, I find myself wondering what would happen if Todd had a more straightforward conversation with his friend and sort of saying, like, you know, this is how I felt in our friendship at whatever point in the past. And I'm really not feeling that level of connection or I'm really not feeling like we laugh at the same jokes anymore or we really don't have shared interests anymore or whatever. And seeing what happens out of that conversation. Yeah. How do you guys Um, feel about um, taking breaks? So... I'll give you an example. I I have a dear friend. Uh, we've been friends since high school and ride or die BFFs. And then I got married and I had I started to have children and we were just in very different places. And so we sort of drifted away. But now we're back together in a way that we're learning about each other and the time that we spent away from each other. But we also have that familiarity that really guides us and is like a stronghold for us. And it's just been a beautiful thing. But I don't know if we would be at this point if we didn't take a moment away from each other. I think that is hard to tell because even the language of taking a break uh, usually means that it is... um, it is on purpose, and the kind of break mm. that you're talking about is not really pre-planned or discussed. You were, drifted away, yeah. You drifted away from each other, and I think we that, were passive. Yes, um, <laughs> you were passive, and I wonder that all the time. I have friendships like that too, where you drift away, and then you know one person makes contact again, and it's not that it's the same, but you are once again both open to being in each other's mm-hmm. lives. I have found that in the the drift away and come back friendships, the only ones that have really worked is if we both individually did the work of figuring out, you know, why we were drifting away. And then when we come back together, we were able to talk about it like grownups. But I do think that you're getting at something in friendship that I think is very beautiful and that we write about is that friendship is the most, um, it is the most like generous and expandable kind of relationship you can have with someone, you know, Mm. almost like lungs. Some years you, you fill up the lungs and some years you do not. 
and there is a flexibility. I was going to say leggings. Leggings, yes. <laughs> leggings? <laughs> stretching. You stretching. <laughs> you stretch like the leggings. Um, welcome to two yeah. writers who never get their metaphors right. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I just, I just think that, like, in friendship, you can do that. You cannot do that in your romantic relationships in a way that it's is, uh, you know, yeah. that's, like, constructive. And certainly parents and children cannot just uh, drift away from each other and expect that everything will be forgiven without, yeah. without a stern talking to. So I do think that within the fabric of friendship, there is this kind of flexibility built in. I Like I had a friend, for example, who had a baby and she took me out to dinner and she told me, she's like, hey, the time that we spend together unstructured, all of that is going to change. You know, like I'm just mm. not going to be able to like do all the things that we do. We have very different lifestyles now. But she's like, I'm really committed to figuring out how we are going to work through that because you are really important to me. And that was such a like galaxy brain mind explosion for me. Where I was like, what? You're being an adult and we're talking about a future conundrum that we will have and you want to find a way to, to work it out. And I am happy to say that I need her- to be a part of your circle, your friendship circle. You guys are so mature and so are we mature? Or intentional. Are we, lucky? are we mature? Or are we lucky? Um, you know, and I, I think that it's a mix. Yeah. But I think that with my friend, that level of intentionality was—it was a very generous thing for her to do, and I think opened up a line of communication that we would have never had before. So well, true. and I feel like like it's not rare that I kind of have that feeling in a friendship of like, oh, things are about to change, you know, someone's moving yeah. away or like some right, fundamental right. thing is changing. I think that the difference in the example you just gave is like it was openly acknowledged instead of it being like a kind of nagging fear in the back of one yes. or both of your minds. And so I just want to note that like we kind of know when the opportunities for a conversation like that are happening or like, so you know true. what I mean? It's It's just that there's not a lot of encouragement to take the step and make it as explicit as your friend did. Okay, let's listen to our next question that is very much in the moment. Dear Truth Be Told, so with the George Floyd protests and growing attention to BLM, there has come a wave of wokeness from white friends. I think we've all experienced it on some level, from white friends Venmoing you money to show off all the anti-racist books they bought. It can be hard to take seriously when you've been friends with someone and you've had to handhold through understanding before, or even call out. It's also been hard seeing white friends suddenly take interest in listening to their BIPOC friends' experiences right now as if they haven't been sharing those all along, as if we have to rehash trauma to suit their needs. My question is, when is the emotional labor too much? How do you set boundaries with white friends to maintain your sanity and not just default into their BIPOC friend who will educate them? I just want to say before you all answer this, I don't have any friends who are sending me money via Venmo. Um, I think I'd be open to that, though. Um, <laughs> lots of friends contacting me and telling me the books they're reading, but no money yet. Still waiting for that. But seriously, um, I, I would love to hear you, your thoughts on this. I do not have friends sending me money. I definitely have a lot of strangers and people who think they're my friends sending me money. Mm. Um, and so that is like a distinction that I make all the time. And I think that in interracial friendships, there is a level of familiarity that white people sometimes have with um, with a black person, for example. Like, I'm like, I'm black, so I cannot speak to the by POC experience. I can only speak to the black experience. But um, I, you know, I think that sometimes you really do have to ask yourself, is this person even my friend? And I think that at a fundamental level, a lot of times the answer is uh, no. 
I am really lucky in that race has been addressed like thoroughly in all of my friendships with white people in the sense where either we talk about it and we have a healthy relationship or it's something that we do not talk about and therefore it means that we are not the close friends that you know, we say we are. And we write about this in the book. Everything that happens in the world, race is obviously a problem that is systematic. It has nothing to do with is someone actually racist or not. Like I would say, for example, that I do not have people in my life that I, you know, I was like, I don't think that they're racist. It's why they're in my life. It does not mean that they're not capable of perpetrating uh, racism. And so I think that the defensiveness that white people usually feel when, you know, race (laughs) things are happening is very telling. The level of discomfort that they feel is very telling. It just goes back to what are things in your relationship that you can and cannot talk about, you know? And if you Mm -hmm. cannot talk about something that is so (laughs) intrinsically tied to your identity, I think that the larger question really is, how close am I to this person? What you're saying is exactly right. The people that are contacting you out of the blue probably aren't your friends. They're not. They think they're they're your associates. They're the people that white people say I have black friends, and you're you're who they're talking about. Right. They're, you're like colleagues <laughs> or associates, and there is a difference there. And and now that you say that, I don't think I had actually thought about that, but I'm thinking about those that have, that have reached out to me during this time, and they are all associates. My true white friends who we've had discussions time and time again about this and they understand the complexity of my experience are not reaching out in this way. Mm -hmm. And we write about this in Big Friendship. It rings really hollow when people are, you know, you watch white people that you know, um, you know, share their reading lists online or their, you know, like their signs at a protest or whatever. The performative allyship. The performative allyship rings very hollow when in the intimacy of your friendship, it's not something that you're used to talking about. So again, Mm -hmm. it begs the question of who are you even performing for? Because Mm. the people, the white people that are intimate to me in my life are people that we have these conversations all of the time. And if we are not having them, It's telling you everything you need to know about the kind of relationship that we have. And Mm. so, you know, and Anne and I, even in our own friendship, have really had to confront the fact that, you know, we are two people that are really adept at talking about, um, you know, politics and how racism manifests itself in the world. And we can talk about racist incidents that we, um, you know, like whether I have endured them or that Anne has witnessed. But a place in our relationship that we realized years into our friendship we had not talked about was what does it mean when Anne is the person who is causing pain in our friendship? You know, Mm. like, and, Mm. and that is a thing that I think anyone who intimately knows white people um, understands that is possible. Like a white person Mm -hmm. will cause you pain. This is a concept that the writer and critic Wesley Morris talks about the Mm -hmm. trapdoor of racism. And you're just living your life and you're doing the thing you want to do. And then a white person usually, or a situation that involves the white person will cause you to remember that, uh, yeah, we are not the same. And also this incident is actually about race. And it's never anything dramatic. Like we're not talking about, um, you know, if someone calls you the N-word or they're like explicitly a white nationalist, I was like, it's very easy to root those people out of your life. We're really talking about the 
What does it mean when someone that you are really, really close friends to, you know, you realize that they only ever have white people at their brunches at their house? Or what does it mean Mm -hmm. when you are explaining to them a racist incident that happens to you at work and then all of a sudden they're like, well, to play devil's advocate, we're not talking about someone who is voting for Donald Trump and proud of it. You know, it's just truly, it's like, what does it mean? And I think that if we are all really honest across all kinds of identities and across like all kinds of, you know, like ways that we portray ourselves in the world, people are capable of hurting you. And, and it is not on purpose, especially when you are talking about issues that are structural. And so, you know, making space to talk about them is, is really vital to the, to your relationship thriving or, you know, Mm -hmm. or it will indicate that the relationship is not what you think it is. You, you brought this up. I want to, I want to deepen this. I know that you all met through mutual friends. And I have this golden touch when it comes to introducing people who later become best friends with each other. And I'm going to admit that I sometimes feel kind of jealous about this because I'm like, hey, I introduced the two of you and now I'm not a part of the equation. I mean, this happens a lot. What's the deal here and how do I get over it? And uh, I mean, of course, lots of questions to respond to your question. You know, yeah. I think I think asking yourself um, about what's really at the root of that feeling, you know, is it that you mm. wish you were closer to these two people individually? Um, you know, is it maybe that you are like feeling some kind of vulnerability of like, oh, what if something really private I shared with one of you is now making its way mm. to the other person? Or no. I don't know. Yeah. There's a lot of different scenarios for what could yeah. be the the cause of that feeling. And And I also think that this is another place where you could be a little bit more proactive and self-expressed and saying like, not so much, hey, let me in on this friendship, (laughs) but you know, more specifically, like if you know that they took a little trip together or if you know that they have a standing dinner date, I think you could say something like, oh, I saw that, you know, you guys had dinner. I would love to join you sometime. Or like, you know, you can be expressed about that fact because, Mm. you know, it's interesting, you know, the two of us are both still very close to Dio, who, Dio, the woman who introduced us originally. And we don't always have a dynamic where the three of us are hanging out together. And yeah. um, and I do think that in most cases, when I think about friends who have introduced me to someone else I love, almost always I'd be like, yeah, join us too, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, so, so yeah, so there's a, there's a combination of some self-reflection about where the feeling is coming from. Mm-hmm. And then also maybe some more direct asks. Yeah, I mean, just being really truly communicative and like having the direct conversations. I mean, this actually happened a few weeks ago and I know the person will be listening to this podcast and I love you. I want to tell you that. But I received a text of the two people that I introduced on a hike together and I thought, well, I would have loved to have been on this hike with you guys. So they're letting me know that, hey, thank you for doing this great thing. You've introduced us. It's me just not even, maybe not even taking it so seriously and just straight up just saying, hey, oh my gosh, next time invite me kind of thing. Yeah, we are are the opposite. I'm like, if two people that I've introduced send me a text of them hanging out alone, I'm like, thank God they did not ask me to join in. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to do that. So That's how you know she's an introvert. Yeah, (laughs) I'm like, good luck to the two of you. But you know, I think that that Anne's instinct about ask yourself why you feel that way, because I do think that it, you know, like in your, in the way that you were telling us, there is like an indication that it might be a 
pattern and that the pattern makes you feel vulnerable. You know, yeah. I am <laughs> yeah. always the middleman of a transaction between two people who fall in love and then I am not so much a part of that. And I think that the only adult response is to just say to your friend, like, hey, I, you know, like sometimes when you send me pictures of you two hanging out, I feel a little tender that I'm not a part of it. I really love your relationship. You know, if you're ever doing something that, you know, you could need a third for, I would love to join. Like, who is right. not going to respond positively to that? You know? Oh, I know. Oh, I know. I know. Okay. Yeah, get over myself and just ask and also be introspective and thinking about, you know, I know I'm a busy person and I often think people think of me that way too. Get over That's yourself and just ask is truly yeah. the story of being an adult. <laughs> Isn't it? It's, it's not the great. Story of big friendship. So get over yourself yes. and ask directly. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right. Yeah. I've learned so much from both of you in just this short conversation. And I'm really excited for everyone to read your book and really deepen their understanding of what big friendship means. Aminatu So and Ann Friedman are the co-hosts of Call Your Girlfriend podcast and the co-authors of the new book, Big Friendship, How We Stay Close. Thanks for joining Thank us. Thank you for having us, Tania. Have a wonderful day. Thank you day. so much. And like Aminatu said, the mark of a real grown-up is to be direct and talk through everything we care about for the betterment of our friendships and really for all of our relationships. On our next episode of Truth Be Told, what does home mean to you? I sit down with Sarah M. Broom, the winner of the 2019 National Book Award for her memoir, The Yellow House, which is now in paperback. It's about family, resilience, and the deep connection to her childhood home in New Orleans. Maybe that's what the going back is for me. A way of saying, I haven't forgotten, I won't forget. And I think that matters more than anything on earth for me. Mm. That I return to the soil where I'm from. That's next time on Truth Be Told. And hey, we'd love for you to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Our goal is to get a thousand reviews so others can find us and so that we can hear what you think about the show. Thank you so much. Truth Be Told is produced by Susie Racho, Issa Mendoza, and Katie McMurrin. KQED's leadership team includes Erica Aguilar, Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. And a big thanks to Kiana Mogadam. Truth Be Told is a production of KQED in San Francisco. I'm Tanya Mosley.